This is a reading from the letters of Joseph Charles Philpot, the first one taken from Oakham, November 8, 1837. My dear friend, if you measure me by yourself, you will not conceive writing letters so pleasant a task as to expect two of me before I return to Allington. One, I believe, must satisfy you this time. I intend, God willing, to leave Oakham on the 15th and hope to arrive at Abingdon that evening. I have been wanted to preach at Newbury, but I cannot fully settle when until I have seen Tip Taft. I am glad he was so well heard at Allington. You, I doubt not, had much pleasant conversation with him and found in him a listening ear as well as a ready tongue. The spirit of hearing at Oakham and the anxiety of the people greatly induced me to remain so long here. As I was sitting in the pulpit the last Sunday I was there, and viewing the congregation and their eagerness to hear, I felt I was about to return to a comparatively thin chapel, and the desire to preach to a people so willing to hear arose in my mind. And this it was which led me to lend a more willing ear to Mr. Dale Marivolo when he asked me to return in the spring. The general impression here was that I meant to stay the winter, which I never thought of doing since last July. Our congregations here continue unabated, and as we have been favored with fine Sundays, it enables the distant hearers to come. I don't think any hearers can be fair judges of ministers. They, of course, think of themselves, and if they hear well and love a minister, they want to keep them all to themselves. He, on the other hand, where he feels life and a blessing to attend his ministry is drawn to that place, and where he meets the hungry people is willing to give them such food as he has. And I dare say we wanderers contract a roving disposition and like change. Popularity, too, has its dangerous charms, and large congregations please the carnal mind. But I think I am so well weighted and ballasted by temptations and sins that popularity has less charms for me than many. A man full of evil and that continually has not much to be proud of, and his fear is lest God should stop his mouth or cut him down for his presumption. As a farmer, you are not very proud of your diseased lambs, and as a preacher, I cannot be very proud of my diseased prayers and sin-stained sermons. Neither can I boast much of my daily backslidings, hardness of heart, discontent, vileness, and abominable filthiness. I at times know not what will become of me, and I fear I shall live and die a reprobate. I find sin has such power over me, and though I call on the Lord again and again for deliverance, seem to be as weak as ever when temptation comes." O thou hideous monster sin, what a curse hast thou brought in! I love it, I hate it, I want to be delivered from the power of it, and yet I'm not satisfied without drinking down its poison sweets. It is my hourly companion and my daily curse, the breath of my mouth and the cause of my groans, my incentive to prayer and my hinderer of it, that made a Savior suffer and makes a Savior precious, that spoils every pleasure and adds a sting to every pain, that fits a soul for heaven and ripens a soul for hell. Friend Joseph, canst thou make out my riddle? Is thy heart as my heart, said one of old, then come up into my chariot. We shall quarrel by the way, unless as in water face answereth to face, so does the heart of man to man. Black men will not form a good regiment with white ones, and clean hands will not do to show dirty hands with. I believe I shall never live and die a Pharisee. I must come in amongst the sinners, the ragged regiments of adulterous David's idolatrous Manassas, swearing Peter's, persecuting Saul's, 
fornicating Corinthians, railing thieves, and the self-abhorring publicans. Pardon to the innocent is a word of six letters, and that is all. Redemption to the self-saved is a Bible term, no more. And some of them say it is a universal term, and others a particular term. And the one quotes an Arminian and the other a Calvinistic text, and with these sticks they belabor one another's heads, whilst a lost, sin-bitten bulrush Howling, half-desperate, ditch-plunged, black-hearted wretch, up to the neck in guilt, cries out for its individual application as its only hope and remedy. I at times quite despair of salvation, and then again am as careless as if hell had no wrath and having no love, as if sin had no wormwood and pardon no sweet, as if there were no God to mark evil and no devil to tempt to it. So, my friend, you must not expect to find your winter fireside companion much grown in progressive sanctification and creature holiness. You say very little about my leaving you again in March. I suppose from thinking me too obstinate and self-willed to listen to anybody's will and advice but my own. I shall hope, however, to have some pleasant conversations with you during the dreary months so rapidly coming on. I am glad to hear all your family are well and desire my kind love to all the children. My kind regards to Mr. and Mrs. T., Mrs. C., and your kind lady, and believe me to be your affectionate friend, J.C. Philpott. From Oakham, April 30th, 1838. My dear friend, I was sorry to learn through a most kind and affectionate letter from our dear friend Reg that you were so much troubled at the mention which I made in my last letter of my intention to settle here. Believe me, my dear friend, that had it not been for my being under the necessity of fixing on some settled place of abode, I should have paused very long before I relinquished my post at Allington, and had I continued as might perhaps have been best for me, unmarried, I should have felt very unwilling to leave that abode which not only your kindness and hospitality, but also our union and divine things rendered always so comfortable. I shall never forget that for nearly three years our friendship, instead of diminishing, has only kept continually increasing, and that during all that time no unkind word, or I believe even look, has passed between us. Whatever unkind thoughts or feelings Satan or our vile hearts have coined, they have mercifully been confined within our own bosoms. As you never thwarted or opposed me, and indeed were only anxious to anticipate my wishes, I cannot take much credit to myself for evenness of temper, as I know not how sullen and growling I might have been had you often trampled on my toes, and you are well aware that I have two or three corns which will not bear much treading upon. And as to my reception by yourself and a few others as a minister, all I can say is that I most fully believe that both you and a few others thought by far too well of me, and were blind to great defects which I daily see and feel in myself, nor do I ever expect to find wherever I go hearers on the whole comparable to a few at Allington, who understood, received, and felt my drift and line of things, so as in most things that we could see eye to eye and feel heart to heart with each other. I feel a real soul union to a few there who, as our friend Dredge once truly expressed it, met together to worship God aright. And it was the desire of my soul not to read for reading's sake, nor pray for praying's sake, nor preach for preaching's sake, but to be so favored with the presence and power of the Blessed Spirit in each and all that our souls might be refreshed thereby. And so, through weakness of the flesh, hardness of heart, deadness of soul, temptations of Satan, and withdrawings of God's presence, I was often bound, 
fettered and shut up in heart and tongue, yet this I can say to the honor and glory of God, if ever I felt my heart solemnized in prayer, or my soul enlarged and mouth opened in preaching, if all was not delusion and subtle refinement of nature counterfeiting the operation of grace, I have felt both in Ellington pulpit. I have felt something like what John Bunchen mentions in his book, Grace Abounding, with respect to the things I have there contended for. Methought I was more than sure that those things which I asserted were true. I was much pleased with friend Dredge's kind letter, and felt a real soul union to him. A few real gracious heaven-taught souls, how preferable a thousand times is their friendship to all the canting, whining, brother this and sister that, of empty professors. When a man begins to doubt and fear and question for himself, he will find similar exercises respecting others, and universal charity will wither away from the root. You and I, my friend, cannot say that sin has no dominion over us. Alas, alas, we feel its power daily and hourly, and we sigh and groan at times to be delivered from the giant strength of those corruptions which seem to carry us away captive at their will. Though sin is a sweet morsel to our carnal mind, it grieves our soul, cuts up our evidences, removes our landmarks, and often seems to make our salvation impossible. Oh, what snares and temptations does the cunning devil lay for our feet, and seldom do we see the snare before we feel the smart. And a preacher, too, oh, I think if I were seen in my right colors, and if that window of which the Wesleyans talk were placed in my bosom, what filth and vileness would be seen. I am sure I must be a monument of grace and mercy if saved from the guilt, curse, and power of sin. Few know what sin is. Who would think one spark of fire on which your little boy could tread and extinguish could burn down your ricks, barns, houses, and everything whither it could reach, or on which it could feed? Such is sin. Behold how great a manner a little fire kindleth. We feel we have no strength against sin, and we are sure that the blood of Christ alone can cleanse from sin's guilt and filth, and His grace alone from its power and dominion. I arrived here on Friday last, and preached yesterday to two large congregations. I felt shut up in the morning, but more at home in the afternoon. As a convenient house does not offer at Stamford, we think of lodgings for the first year or so. Of your affectionate friend, J.C. Philpott. From London, June 4, 1838. Here at length, then, my dear friend, am I in this busy metropolis, where, as far as the eye seeth, well nigh all are seeking their own, and not the things which are Jesus Christ's. And yet here, doubtless, there is a remnant according to the election of grace. I was sorry to hear of your heavy loss of youth. I dare say that these trials and providence, which you have lately so much suffered, have been both embers and bellows to the carnal mind which is enmity against God. But sure I am that the letter of the word, as well as the universal experience of the living family, testify that providential losses and crosses are marks for and not against those that fear God. I preached twice yesterday to two large congregations. The evening one might be called overflowing as the forms were filled up all the aisles, and many sat and stood upon the stairs of the galleries and the windows. I cannot say that I felt much at home in the morning, but had more of a door of utterance in the evening. But indeed I feel myself very unfit to preach either in London or anywhere, and would much sooner tarry at Jericho till my beard be grown. I hope, however, the Zoar's friends did not think my sword had been lying ever since I saw them at the bottom of the Kennet, 
an Avon canal, and was covered blade and handle with a thick coating of rust. I felt towards the close of my sermon that I cared for nothing and nobody so long as I cleared my own conscience, and I desired that every arrow should peer through the joints of the armor into the heart. That, however, I must leave in the hands of him who hath twice said that power belongeth unto God. I was not so fatigued with my exertions as I expected and feel today, notwithstanding my broken rest. Pretty comfortable and strong. I've walked about a good deal today and have just returned from hearing the Jew who said some good things, but not exactly in our line. I intend, Lord willing, hearing him again as he preaches near here every Monday evening, and is very sound in the letter of truth, as well as preaches more experience than most of the London ministers. I see from his preaching how defective I am in bringing forward scripture. He quotes it very much and often much to the point. I intend taking the opportunity of hearing various ministers whilst in town, that I may feel more what is, is said to be a hearer, and what food and what preaching feeling souls need. I was pleased to hear from Dredge's letter to ask that he hears Kay so well. It will be quite a providence if you can have him occasionally, as you are likely to be so destitute. I believe him to contend for right things and to bear many marks of divine teaching. I do not, however, conceive that he will be permanently attended with crowded congregations. I find this busy city very distracting at times to my mind, and am too much carried away by its noise and glare. Yet I walk about its streets as one who has no communion with its busy crowds. I heard this morning old Mr. Wilkinson near the bank preach. He appears to be a good old man, but is very smooth, and would, by his preaching, take in hundreds. He was speaking about the sin against the Holy Ghost, and almost intimated his belief that it could not now be committed. He is the last left of Romaine school, and is found in the letter of truth. The aisle was quite full, and I stood during the whole time. I find there are very few preachers that can really hit the right nail on the head. I saw in the old gentleman's sermon this morning abundant places for discrimination and separation from the vial which he never alluded to. No one that I hear ever insinuates a doubt whether there be such a thing as a counterfeit religion and a false experience. The old gentleman would make the stockbrokers look about them as if he talked about forged notes and dishonored bills. The walls of his church form a part of Capel Court where the stock exchange is situate, and many of his hearers are broken there. I receive most days invitations to preach, but I'm compelled to decline them all as having to speak two evenings at Zoar besides my labors on the Lord's Day. You are looking, no doubt, to tip tasks coming among you and expecting much pleasure and profit both from his preaching and conversation. I shall be very glad to hear that the Lord has blessed him both in the pulpit and the parlor. As I have to speak this evening, allow me to wind up thus hastily by signing myself your sincere and affectionate friend, J.C. Philpott. From London, June 12, 1838. My dear friend, I received your kind letter safely, and as the witness of the afternoon allows me a leisure hour, I answer it thus early. I have now fulfilled half my engagement as O.R., and have reason to be thankful for having been helped thus far. I have never, I think, been more sensible of my unfitness and unworthiness for the pulpit than during my visit to town this time, and it's not because I have been altogether left to my own miserable barrenness and nothingness, or because I have been more than usually shut up and restrained, nor have reason to be thankful that I have been enabled to contend for the things of salvation with such a measure of utterance as is commonly vouchsafed to me. 
The morning congregation yesterday or Sunday was very large, and besides the seats and galleries, the aisles were fully occupied, benches being placed up the middle one. I cannot say that I felt much at home. After service, I received five different invitations to preach, namely at Dunmow, Essex, and Wittenshmore Hill, at a place on the road to Brighton, and at Mr. Fowler's Gower Street, and for the Aged Pilgrims Friends Society. Of these I could only accept one, namely the last, as I find that preaching twice at Zoar on the Lord's Day, giving an exhortation, as they call it, though I make a short sermon of it, on Tuesday evening, and preaching again on Thursday evening is ample work for my weak chest. On yesterday evening the congregation was very large, there being a row of standers as well as sitters up the middle aisle, and all the lobby and porch quite full, too. Well, you will say, did not old nature swell up and puff at such a sight? Ah, my friend, I had ample valves to let out all this stinking gas. First, I felt that novelty and excitement would draw a congregation where there was no power from on high, and that a man who would preach a sermon standing on his head would draw ten times as large a congregation as I. Secondly, I felt my ignorance and lack of experience, my deep pollution and sinfulness and utter unfitness and unworthiness to be a teacher and leader of the people. I was enabled, however, to contend for the power of vital godliness and the attending deficiencies and obstacles of the way, and endeavor to show that it was no easy or common thing to be a Christian. I particularly aimed my shafts against those who, according to their preaching, were in the third heaven, and yet never spoke of trials proportionate to their faith. Mr. Triggs of Plymouth was my immediate predecessor, and I am told fills the chapel very much. They say there are but four or five ministers who fill the place, amongst whom they reckon Kershaw, Tiptaft, and my unworthy self. I had almost resolved that I would not break the bread at Zoar this time, but Justin's pressed me so warmly in saying that the friends wished me so much to do it that I felt I could not decline. I think you know my aversion of putting myself thus prominently forward, and I can say I scarce ever felt more sensibly unfit and unworthy. But my frame was solemnized, and I was enabled to pray and speak with some simplicity. The galleries were nearly full of spectators, and I dare say some remarks which I dropped upon close communion did not suit many. One woman came into the vestry afterwards to set me right, which she failed in doing, though I received her experience, which she told me is a striking one. A lady at Kensington, a widow, who has an establishment for twenty-four young ladies, came to me in the vestry last Tuesday, and had an interview with me yesterday. I cannot narrate all her history, but it appears she has been under spiritual exercises for some years. About two years ago, a friend put into her hand my pamphlet about the Church of England, which, according to her account, opened her eyes and drove her out of the establishment. Not able to find food among the dissenters, she joined a party who met to read and expound the scriptures. On discovering that some of the party lived in known and justified sin, she left them and meditated returning to the church, but a singular coincidence threw winter of four harvest into her hands, which decided her never to go back, and learning from the gospel standard that I was to be at Zoar, she determined to come and see me and take my advice what to do. 
seeing me so young, and as I suppose ruddy as youthful David, she thought she could not open her mind to me till I took a text which had been applied to her mind with power some years ago, and then she determined to come forward and ask my advice how to act. She said she did not mind losing all her scholars if she could but know where to go to hear and what to do. I like some things she said, but she has been badly nursed. She is quite a lady in her manners and appearance, but says she cares not how mean and poor her companions are, if she could but hear truth. I could give her no advice but to seek counsel of the Lord. Poor Fowler broke a blood vessel again on Saturday, and of course could not preach yesterday. The deacons wished me to preach for him tomorrow, but being published here I could not. I thank you for your kind invitation for myself and fair companion, which I hope to accept in due time. I cannot fix exactly the time, as it will depend on our visit to Plymouth. I think of staying in town a week, and then of going to see my mother. But you may depend upon it, I will endeavor to give you what time I can. I hope you will write often, as, believe me, I would sooner hear from you than most of my correspondence. I have written a short P.S. to Tip Taft, and now, my dear friend, with my Christian love to friend Dredge, and all the friends, from your affectionate friend J.C. Philpott. J.C. Philpott was married at Oakham, July 24, 1838, and forthwith took his young wife away with him on a visit to his mother, then residing at Plymouth. A few days were spent in the metropolis on their way, whence they took boat round the south coast to their destination. His mother, long desirous of seeing her son married and comfortably settled, received his bride with all the warmth and affection of her loving heart, and her daughters most heartily joined in the friendly welcome. While staying there, he did not once enter the pulpit, but took his place as a hearer under Mr. Triggs. He so strongly desired that his own preaching might be blessed and applied to the hearts of such of the Lord's people as might hereafter be his hearers, that about this time he would, as often as occasion permitted, embrace the opportunity of sitting under a good and gracious man, and take his place in the pew instead of in the pulpit. Thus, he thought, he would find out a hearer's needs, and would henceforth be able to speak more to their hearts from knowing, from self-experience what were their yearnings, their wants, and their desires, how deeply he felt his own deficiencies, and how earnestly he desired that the Lord would bless his preaching to the souls of his people. The reader will glean from the following letter written to Mr. Perry during the stay at Plymouth. Stoke, Devonport, August 8, 1838. My dear friend, we arrived here safely, through mercy, on Thursday evening after a rough passage. I was not sorry to go ashore and leave the steam vessel and all its disagreeable accompaniments behind. I was thankful, however, at the protection granted by an unseen hand, when there were so many provocations of the great majesty of heaven. I propose, Lord willing, to continue here until about the 23rd, when I think of leaving in order to be at Allington for the last Lord's Day in this month. This will enable me to be with you seven or eight Lord's Days before I take my flight to Oakham and Stamford. I have not heard from Tip-Taff since he reached Oakham. I much fear he will not be better unless he consent to lie by for a time and give himself rest. I've... I believe he will give up his Manchester engagement. I am well and deeply convinced that a man can neither distress nor comfort himself, bring his soul into bondage, nor deliver it into liberty.
The Lord killeth and maketh alive. I often feel as if I were utterly dead in sin and had never received a spark of divine life out of the fullness of the Godhead. I seem as dark, as blind, as earthly, and as sensual as any worldling. I know well that nothing can rouse me out of this state but trials and afflictions, yet my flesh cries out for a smooth and easy path. If I had not at times some breathings after the living God, I must conclude I had not a spark of vital godliness. I am glad to learn that you heard tip-taff profitably and hope that you found Smart's testimony blessed to your soul. I received a letter the other day from a gentleman, a hearer of mine in London, in which he said that he had met a gentleman, a hearer of Mr. Huntington's, who expressed himself willing to take a chapel on his own responsibility with the full conviction that I should raise and keep a congregation in the metropolis. I felt, however, little disposed to attend to any such intimation, knowing my ignorance and weakness and want of sufficient grace and gifts, experience and power for the great metropolis. I need to be taught much more deeply and powerfully before I can stand up as a leader of God's people. I am only fit for lispers and stammerers and inquirers of the way to Zion. I know well what I want, but to get it is out of my power, and I should probably kick and rebel were it even now given me in the Lord's own way. I was glad to find that the Lord had opened your heart to sell your corn at a cheaper rate to your workmen than the market price. Nature and reason would sadly cry out against this, but the word of the everlasting God is on your side, and let God be true and every man a liar. Now don't expect any gratitude from those whom you have thus benefited, and if you want to know the reason, call into court a witness named Joseph Perry, and make him an evidence for the prisoners at the bar. He will tell judge and jury what an unthankful wretch he has been and is, and will declare from his own experience that gratitude is an exotic plant that grows only in the courts of heaven, and that if ever he smelt the fragrance of that heavenly plant, a sprig of it was put into his bosom by the Holy Ghost. I hope and trust that friend Reg and you are walking in sweet union and communion. It is good for brethren to dwell together in unity. Though it is only the oil that was poured on the head of Aaron that can reach to the skirt of his clothing and glue together the hems of the garment, and I think and believe that you both would be well content with a name and a place at the Redeemer's feet, however higher others might aim and soar, I feel more united to him than ever, given my Christian love, also to Mrs. Wilde and all the friends of truth from an experimental acquaintance with it in their hearts. Believe me to be your sincere and affectionate friend, J.C. Philpott. Stanford, December 24th, 1838. My dear friend, I had been for some time daily expecting to receive a letter from you, and I think, had not your last arrived when it did, I should have written either to you or to friend Dredge to express my wish to learn how matters were going on among my friends in Wilts. You had no need to reproach yourself for having displayed coldness when we parted, as I perceived no such manner. And if I had, I should have known that our friendship rested on too firm a basis to be shaken by such a trifle. I am usually much averse to display of sentimentalism, and would rather meet and part with friendship in the heart than friendship in the hand, tongue, or face. So I hope your conscience will be at ease on this score. We may now, I suppose, consider ourselves pretty well settled, though our constant journeys backwards and forwards to Oakham have a great tendency to unsettle us. We go there every alternate Friday and return the following Wednesday, thus spending five days and every fortnight there and the remaining nine here. 
I preach here every Thursday evening and at Oakham on every alternate Tuesday, making it more laborious than I have been accustomed to for some years. I find, however, through mercy, my strength equal to my day and have not enjoyed better health for some years. I am glad to find from your letter that you seem to see your signs more than you have often done and feel the flowings out of love and affection to the friend of sinners. I believe previous to such a clear and full revelation of Christ to the soul as sets it at full liberty, there usually is such a view of him through the lattice as causes the affections to flow forth. The beloved puts his hand by the hole of the door, and then the bowels are moved for him. This makes us rise up to open the door, but the beloved withdraws himself, and so we call he gives no answer. I believe there is much of this preparatory work before deliverance comes, and though the stall-fed oxen and fat bulls of Bashan must always have oil cake and turn away from a nip of wiry grass under the hedge, the famishing calves can eat it with a very good appetite. The preaching is usually well attended at both Stamford and Oakham, and I have found it at times good to preach. I will say, however, that I have usually found myself more at home in Ellington pulpit than in any other, and think that perhaps I felt myself more unfettered there, as being more accustomed to the people, and able to run on as the thoughts and words came. The people here being less accustomed to my manner and drift, I think cannot follow me so well, and this sometimes checks me in my career. I think I have been heard best on the week evenings, and when there is usually a good congregation, as many perhaps as there used to be at Ellington in the afternoon. I am glad to hear good tidings of Dorcas. I received her experience as a divine one as soon as I heard it, and believe it will stand forever and ever. We had a collection yesterday at our chapel here for the poor, and though the day was wet and the chapel thin, we collected twenty-three pounds. We are to have a collection in Oakham for the same purpose next Lord's Day, and I hope we shall raise as much there. They call me a good beggar, but I do not consider myself one, and hate to stand pleading for money out of the pockets of skin flints. If I can say a few words in season to God's princely family, it is all well, but I cannot bear to flog the blood from the back of misers. Let their money perish with them, for if they have not a heart beyond their money, they have no treasure in heaven." A covetous Christian is as great a contradiction as a drunken Christian or a Christian adulterer, and the one is as far from heaven as the other. But the old leaven sticks close and needs the sword of the spirit to be thrust under the plaster to tear it off. I find religion very uphill work, and am more and more dissatisfied with myself. I seek sometimes to commence at the very beginning and come to God as if I never came to Him before. I feel like a person who has been badly educated and who, conscious of the defects of his education, goes back to the first elements and seeks to learn them perfectly and understands them thoroughly. And as to my preaching, I am often sick and ashamed of it. So little do I know aright and so little calculated to point out the way to Zion. It is, however, through ignorance we learn knowledge and through foolishness wisdom, according to those heavenly paradoxes which you like to hear set forth. If you have not read Huntington's Destruction of Death by the Fountain of Life, you will find it a profitable piece to read in the chapel. The observations about Adam in the beginning might be omitted. There is such a fullness and depth in Huntington's writings that two or three close readings are hardly sufficient even to inform our understanding, and for spiritual profit and edification they will bear being read again and again. Your affectionate friend, Phil Pott. London, August 3, 1864 My dear friend, 
These continual attacks warn me that I cannot go on laboring as I have done. I cannot sacrifice my health and life, as I certainly shall do, if I continue my ministry at Oakham and Stamford. I have a wife and family to think of, and I may add, the Church of God generally besides the causes where I have labored so many years. But I feel convinced I cannot go on as I have done. The climate, too, is too cold for me in winter, and especially in spring, and as every attack weakens me more and more, I am less able to endure it. I shall much feel leaving my people and the friends with whom I have been connected so many years, and no other cause would have induced me to do so. But again and again, and especially of late years, I have been laid aside for weeks together, and it is but a gloomy prospect to look forward to a succession of attacks of a similar nature. At present my heart, though weak, is not diseased, nor is emphysema in itself a fatal malady, but I have to consider the probable consequences of my repeated bronchitic attacks and their effect on my constitution. And if these consequences are likely to be very serious, no people could require of me that I should sacrifice not only health but life itself for their sake. I should not lay down the ministry if I cease to minister at Oakham and Stanford, except perhaps for a few months this winter and spring to recover my health, nor should I attach myself to any other people. But occasionally, as the state of my health permitted, I might supply at Gower Street or any other place. I wish to make it a matter of prayer that the Lord would direct my path nor do I wish to come to a hasty decision. But as my year is up at the end of October next, and I cannot stay another winter at Stanford, it is in my mind not to go on beyond that time. I have no doubt that my dear friends at Oakham and Stanford, and you and your dear wife amongst a number, will feel much grieved at the decision to which I have been compelled to come. But I have been almost practically useless for some time, and every attack lasts longer and leaves me weaker. I shall have to sacrifice a good part of my income at the very time when I want it most, but I do not wish to be a burden to the friends who have hitherto for so many years liberally ministered to my necessities. Indeed, I am in a strait and much tried and exercised in my mind, as a step is so important in every way. I have great need of faith and patience, as the trial is exceedingly heavy, spiritually and temporally, in body and soul. None but the Lord to whom I look can do me any real good, and he alone must guide, support, and be with me. Croydon is a place to which we shall probably move, as there is a chapel of truth there, and the soil and situation are dry and warm. This last attack has much pulled me down, both in flesh and strength. Dr. Corf advises me to go to Ellington for a little change, though I should prefer to come home. Our united love to your dear wife, our children, and so on. Yours very affectionately, J.C. Philpott. London, August 4th, 1864 my dear friend, I feel that I must write to you on a subject which I am sure will much try not only your mind, but the mind also of many of my dear friends and hearers, and nothing but necessity would compel me to do so. I have for some time been convinced of the state of my health and the repeated attacks of severe illness which I have now had for several years quite unfit me for the labors which I have undergone at Stamford and Oakham for nearly twenty-six years. I came to London very weak, but it was in hopes that the change as in former years would do me good. And this was the case for the first two or three weeks, but the Lord was pleased to let a cold fall upon my poor weak chest, and the consequence has been one of my attacks of bronchitis, which has quite laid me aside. Dr. Korf has attended me and carefully examined my chest and so on, and says I am not fit for continuous work, and that the climate of Stanford is too cold for me. 
I will endeavor to procure his opinion in a written expression of it, but I am quite convinced, from a feeling sense of my great bodily weakness, that he is right in his judgment. What then must I do? Must I go on till health and life fail together, or adopt such means as, with God's help and blessing, might to some extent preserve both? I have a family to think of besides myself and the Church of God generally, and I am called upon to sacrifice all to the people amongst whom I have so long labored. I do not see that I am, nor could my friends, though they might be sorry to part with me, demand such a sacrifice. Besides which, my long and severe illness make me almost practically useless for weeks and months together, and if this is to increase, I am only a burden to the friends and no benefit. I am much tried on the subject, and am begging of the Lord to guide and direct me, for it is a most important step for me as well as to the people. I seem then brought to this point that I must resign my pastorship of both my churches at Stamford and Oakham, and as my year expires in October next, then to leave, as I cannot stay at Stamford another winter and spring. You and my dear friends and hearers will think this is a very hasty and precipitate step, and that I thought to have given you a longer notice. And so I would, had there been any other reason than the state of my health, I shall have to make a very great sacrifice of income, which I can ill afford. But this will prove my sincerity, and that I am not leaving my people for interested motives. I am very unwell and deeply tried. The Lord appeared for me in this most painful trial. My love to your wife and the friends. Yours affectionately in the truth, J.C. Philpott. That was a letter to Mr. Lightfoot of Stanford. Towards the end of September, he came home to take his final farewell of his two beloved flocks. It was a very sad parting. Many of his poor people had looked upon him as their only friend and adviser in heavenly things. They had known him in the vigor and prime of life. He had grown gray amongst them. A family had grown up around him, and they had never, through these long years of service, had caused a murmur against him. Forever kind and gentle, he was never anything but just and true. On taking leave of one of his dear friends at Stanford, she said to him, What shall I do without you? His answer was, You have your Bible. Read it and pray over it. This was his advice to all. He was but the servant. While they had the master to look up to and cling to, what need had they to fear? It was the same which he had given on another similar occasion when thirty years before he was obliged to leave his flock at Stadhampton. It was a sad lot that twice in the course of his life he had to tear himself away from friends who loved him and whom he loved, to leave old ties and to cling to new ones, but it was God's will, and as such he submitted cheerfully to it. But each time going among new faces he drew around him earnest and sincere friends, and while he did not forget his old affections, the Lord raised up for him new ones as happy and as true as the old. A reading from some earlier letters of J.C. Philpott to Mr. Perry. My dear Mr. Perry, our mutual friend Tip Taff informed me a few days ago of his visit to Ellington and of your wish to hear from me. So dark, ignorant, and benighted is my mind that if I were to give you a view of what is doing in the chambers of imagery, it would afford you but little pleasure or profit. The first time that I saw you, as we were standing in the churchyard together, I think I observed that I knew more of the dark than of the bright side of religion, and I feel it to be so still. I cannot, like some professors, make to myself wings to soar when I please to the third heaven, nor kindle a fire and compass myself about with barks, and then walk in the light of it. I am obliged to come to this. Behold, he shutteth up a man, and there is no opening, when he hideth his faith. 
who can behold him. Some of our professors here can always lay hold of the promises, and so strong is their faith that they neither doubt nor fear. But this is a religion which I cannot come up to. And when I see that this faith of theirs is the work of man and born of the flesh, I tell them that I would sooner have my unbelief than their faith. Not that I think unbelief and darkness good things, but this I learned from them, which few know in our day, that faith is the gift of God. And this too I know, that the feeling sense of our own helplessness and unbelief is a necessary, yea, the only preparation of the soul for the inward discovery and manifestation of Christ. We have in our day too many spiritual thieves and liars. They first get their assurance by climbing over the wall and then boast themselves of a false gift, which, as Solomon says, is like clouds and wind without rain. In other words, has all the appearance of water in our souls and then goes off without giving them a drop. From such a religion may the Lord keep us. It is better to be of a humble spirit with the lowly than to divide the spoil with the proud. It is better to sigh and mourn over a heart full of unbelief and corruption than to take to ourselves one promise which the Lord does not apply. Many will tell us to believe and say, Ye are idle, ye are idle, who have never been in the iron furnace nor sighed out of the low dungeon. I believe for myself that the souls which can really and spiritually rejoice in the Lord are very few, and that their experience is very much checkered with seasons of darkness and distress. And as for that religion which tells us we must rejoice because believers are told in the Bible to rejoice always, it savors to me too much of man's power and free will to be of God. The religion which I want is that of the Holy Ghost. I know nothing but what he teaches me. I feel nothing but what he works in me. I believe nothing but what he shows me. I only mourn when he smites the rock. I only rejoice when he reveals the Savior. I do not say I can rise up to all this, but this is the religion I profess, seek after, and teach. And when the Blessed Spirit is not at work in me and with me, I fall back into all the darkness, unbelief, earthliness, idleness, carelessness, infidelity, and helplessness of my Adam nature. Religion is a supernatural and mysterious thing. It is as much hidden from us until God reveals it as God himself who dwelleth in the light which no man can approach unto. It is the work of the Holy Ghost from first to last. And no text is truer than this. No man knoweth the Son but the Father, neither knoweth any man the Father, save the Son, and he to whomsoever the Son will reveal him. He will have mercy on whom he will have mercy, and he will have compassion on whom he will have compassion. And these favored objects of mercy, and these alone, know the only true God and Jesus Christ whom he has sent. And that happy soul which is thus experimentally taught of the Holy Ghost and brought into a heavenly fellowship with the Father and the Son, will enjoy forever the triune Jehovah, when professors high and low, doctrinal, experimental, and practical Calvinist and Arminian, will be cast into the blackness of darkness forever. A man thus experimentally taught will be humble and abased, will be swift to hear and slow to speak, will have a tender conscience and a godly fear, will seek rather to please God than man, and would sooner speak with God for five minutes than with a frothy professor for an hour. This religion I am seeking after, though miles and miles from it, but no other will satisfy or content me. 
I cannot say I am at all nearer leaving my post here than when I last wrote. Indeed, whilst I am heard with acceptance and have nothing to perform which presses on my conscience, I cannot move till I see my way. I am praying to be delivered from a carnal system, but my way out seems at present hedged up. Let me have your prayers that I may see my way clearly and neither run before I am called out nor stay after I hear the warning voice. I can't move just when and as I please, but must wait for the pillar and the cloud. Stadhampton, December 12th, 1834. My dear Mrs. Rackham, having an opportunity of sending a letter to town, I avail myself of it to redeem my promise of writing to you. You are now doubtless thoroughly settled in your new abode and in some measure reconciled to your mode of life. The noise and bustle of Rochester must have seemed very strange to you at first, and I dare say you have often turned in thought to your former quiet abode, where almost the only noise was from the brook that ran by your window. But if faith is an exercise, the hand of God will be seen in this chain. And besides, what really matters it, where we spend the few years of our pilgrimage below? God is to be found, known, loved, and served as much in all the stirring noise of a town as in the seclusion of a country village. His abode is in the heart, according to his promise. I will dwell in them and walk in them. Second, Second Corinthians 6.16 Thus also he speaks in the following passages, to which you can easily refer Exodus. 29.45 Leviticus 26.11 and 12 Isaiah 57.15 Zechariah 2 verse 2 But you will say, Would indeed it were so with me. Would I could have the Lord God to dwell in me and walk in me. If we look to our own fitness, we must say with Solomon of old, 1 Corinthians 8.27 Will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, the heaven and heaven of heavens cannot contain thee. How much less this house that I have builded. If God indeed dwells with any soul, it is only through the Son of his love that he does so. As to us, all our righteousnesses are as filthy rags from the sole of the foot even unto the head. There is no soundness in us but wounds and bruises and putrefying sores. As a fountain casteth forth her waters, Jeremiah 6, 7, so we cast out our wickedness. And in our hearts, I speak from experience, there is nothing to be found by nature but pride, unbelief, worldliness, idolatry, infidelity, and sensuality. It is a cage of unclean birds, a nest of scorpions, and often seems to realize John's description of Babylon. Revelation 18.2 The habitations of devils, and the hold of every foul spirit. In ourselves, then, we shall ever be vile and sinful and utterly unfit that Jehovah should dwell in us and walk in us. If we are acceptable to God at all, it is only so far as we are accepted in the Beloved. The Holy Ghost describes the church in Ezekiel 16.5 as cast out in the open field to the loathing of her person in the day that she was born. This is our state by nature. But then it adds in verse 8, Now when I passed by thee and looked upon thee, behold, thy time was a time of love. There is nothing beautiful or comely in man to attract the notice of the Lord. No, on the contrary, he is vile and loathsome in his sight. Love on the part of God is free, as he says in Hosea 14.4, I will love them freely. And it is from this free, eternal, sovereign, and unalterable love on his part, and not from any goodness or fitness on theirs, that he spreads his skirt over any poor soul, Ezekiel 16.8, and enters into covenant with it. But you, or rather your unbelieving heart, will say, This is not for me. But why not for you? Are you not a poor, helpless, sin-burdened creature? 
Are you not without hope and without help? Well, these are the persons for whom this free salvation is appointed. He hath sealed the hungry with good things, and the rich he hath sent empty away. The wine and the milk of the gospel is without money and without price. If you are weary and heavy laden, Jesus speaks to you and invites you to come to him. Matthew 11.28 I know well what an unbelieving heart is and how it always takes part against us and writes up bitter things, but still I would encourage you to hope, like the father of the faithful against hope, yea, to hope to the end for the grace that is to be brought unto you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. First Peter 1.10 Your trials doubtless are many, and I dare say at times you are well nigh ready to sink under them, but these are the appointed lot of the true children of God. There is a needs be for all their temptations, crosses, and afflictions, as Peter speaks in First Peter one six. And seven. It gives me pleasure to learn that you have met with a profitable ministry. I hope your present minister will wear well. It is one thing to hear profitably for a short time and another to find a living spring in the minister's soul for a long time together so as to minister grace and good to the children of God. I should advise you to be slow in forming any connection either with the church as a member of it or with professors in general. The best are the hardest to find out, and the most obtrusive are likely to be those whose religion lies more in word than in power. If the Lord sees good, he can raise up for your comfort Christian friends, but it is best for a stranger like yourself to wait than form acquaintances which you must afterwards give up. We are going on here much as usual. My leanness, my leanness, woe unto me, seems to be the general cry. But indeed, from the shortness of the days and my liability to cold, I have not been able to see much of the people lately. S. Hall seems to be a little revived from her deadness, so she is still full of complaints and often speaks of you with affection. Indeed, I trust we all remember you with affection and regret your departure. You mention, I think, in one of your letters your thanks to me for having taught you much of the evil of your heart. I could wish I had been enabled to have taught you as much or of more of Christ. We have two lessons to learn, one full of pain, the other full of pleasure. The first you have been learning, hitherto in a small measure. The second, which consists in the experimental knowledge of Christ, is that which you still have to learn. And as you learn to know the cleansing, healing, purifying efficacy of his blood, love, grace, and righteousness, so will your heart rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory. Whatever some may say about experimental ministers building up their people in doubts and fears, I do not believe it is so. They are no enemies to gospel joy, if it be joy of the right sort and obtained in a right way. They are indeed enemies, and so may they ever be to rotten hopes and false assurances. But when they see a heart truly broken and contrite, they love to see it healed by the great physician. Though I have advised you to be slow to form religious friendships or even acquaintances, still if you can in your vast population find a few humble souls who are experimentally taught sin and salvation, it would be profitable for you sometimes to converse with them. Our cold, dead heart needs refreshing, and as an iron sharpeneth iron, so a man sharpeneth the countenance of his friend. But seek the Lord in solitude, as David of old. Commune with your own heart upon your bed and be still. The food which Christ gives is called hidden manna, and a new name written on the white stone, no man knoweth, saving him that receiveth it. Revelation 2.17
One spiritual believing view of him in secrecy and in solitude is far better than to talk of him with the tongue and to hear of him by the hearing of the ear for a twelve month. He will give you such visits as he sees good for you, and I believe you will generally find him before trouble, or in trouble, or after trouble. Our assemblies at church and lectures have been fairly well attended of late, especially the latter. What we need is to be endued with power from on high. We need showers of blessing to make our hard hearts soft and our barren hearts fruitful. When he is present with us, all is well. When he is absent, all is ill. Believe me to be, my dear Mrs. R., your sincere and affectionate friend, J.C. Philpott. To Mr. Perry, June 7th. 1839. My dear friend, I have felt desirous for several reasons to write to you before the time arrives when I hope to see you again in person at Allington. I cannot, however, precisely fix a time when I intend, Lord willing, to visit my Wiltshire friends owing to a cause which I doubt not you will be sorry to hear. Coming up outside the coach from Wellwind has been the cause, under God's designing wisdom, of giving me a severe attack on my chest, such as you have witnessed at Allington in times past, and from which I have been for some time mercifully free. I was able to preach twice Lord's Day at Zoar, but in the evening with great inconvenience, through hoarseness, which indeed I sensibly felt in the morning. I have been confined to the house ever since, and indeed for most of the time to bed, but am, through mercy, slowly mending. I have been obliged to write to the deacons at Zoar to decline preaching in this week, and on the Lord's Day next. It gives me pain thus to disappoint them, as well as the congregation, which is so usually large and crowded, but I have no alternative, as I am utterly unfit at present to preach. My wife's uncle is attending me and says I am better today. I spent a few days at Wellwind very pleasantly with friends smart, we walked and talked and confessed and got on without one jarring note. He is truly a gracious man and in my judgment much improved. Without losing any faithfulness, boldness or decision, he has become more softened in manner and expression. He preached a very sound, blessed and experimental sermon. I trust our friend Tip Taft was better when I left Stamford. He finds that most beneficial which his hearers would willingly not have so cessation from preaching. Those only who are engaged know what a trying thing it is to the health and constitution and how it acts on mind and body. I have felt sometimes most desperate rebellion against it on this score, but our nature is so desperately crooked and rebellious that it will quarrel with God himself if he comes across our path or thwarts our carnal wishes. Surely those who speak of growing sanctification know nothing of that leprosy within which is always breaking out in thought, if not in actual word or deed. I am well convinced that we are incurables, and that even the great remedy unapplied is like untasted medicine at the bedside of the patient. I am baser and blacker than ever. I seem at times a very prince of hypocrites and impostors, as I feel so unlike everything a minister and a Christian should be. I am like a watch gone down and need a heavenly hand to put in the key, and I find that there is no such thing as winding oneself up by prayers, reading, meditation, and so on, and I find also that the heavenly engineer does not just wind up in twenty-four hours and leave the machine to go. He puts in the key by littles and littles, and no sooner does he take out the keys than I stop. Neither do I find that illness sanctifies a mind or creates religion. I am stupid and carnal, ill or well, unless the blessed Lord make me to feel otherwise. 
friend Justin's has just been here and expressed a disappointment of the friends last evening. This being the case, I cannot refuse to speak next Lord's Day and therefore have promised to do my best. I don't know that I would do it for any other place or people, but they were quite crowded last evening and will probably be more so on Sunday. A man must pay dearly for being followed both in his soul and body. Believe me to be your affectionate friend, J.C. Philpott. London, June 22nd, 1839, to Miss Richmond. My dear Miss Richmond, I am sorry that it will not be in my power to accept your kind invitation and that of the friends to come to Statham, as my engagements have been made for some time, and I have already refused several invitations since I came to town. It would indeed give me pleasure to see my old friends at Statham in the neighborhood and converse with them on the things that belong to our everlasting peace and the many and various ups and downs that we meet by the way. I find myself in the old track still, nor can I get into a smoother road. But in my right mind, and that is a rare mind to be in, I feel it is a better and safer path than the vain confidence of puffed-up professors. It is easy for a dead and feeling soul to presume, but it is hard for a living, God-fearing soul to believe. Servants ride upon horses, a vain thing to save a man, whilst princes walk as servants upon the earth. Surely there are many whose excellency in their own estimation mounts up to the heavens, and whose head, not their hearts, reaches under the clouds, and yet they shall never see the rivers, the floods, the brooks of honey and butter. But the heavens shall reveal their iniquity in the earth. God's children shall rise up against them. Job 20. The whole testimony and spirit of the word of everlasting truth is to put down the mighty from their seats and exalt them of low degree, to fill the hungry with good things and to send the rich empty away. Thus the lame take the prey, the blind see out of obscurity and out of darkness, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, and the poor in spirit have the gospel preached to them. But if we are never feelingly and experimentally lame, blind, leprous, deaf, dead, and poor, surely we can have no meekness for nor interest in gospel blessings. I trust I learned lessons in your little village, which have been and are now profitable to me since I have been brought out more into the public ministry of the word, and the experience I there had, often in sickness and sorrow, of the deceitfulness, hypocrisy, pride, presumption, vileness, and desperate wickedness of my heart, as well as of God's mercy and goodness, have, I trust, in some faint and feeble measure qualified me to testify of the inward evils of the heart in others, and to contend for a free grace salvation, experimentally made known. I am now in this large metropolis, where I believe amidst all this wickedness and abominations, God has a living family, and the chapel where I preach, though large, is very full attended. Amidst the many scores of ministers, there seem to be few indeed who are privileged to undo heavy burdens and let the oppressed go free. Most are groveling in the dregs of Arminianism or soaring aloft in the regions of letter Calvinism. Few, it appears to me, feed the flock of slaughter. I have heard very recently from Oakham, and I'm glad to say that Mr. Tiptaft is better. Preaching, however, so much injures his health that he has been compelled to give up for a time. Both he and the people feel much his being thus laid aside, as to my own health it has been, through mercy, considerably better than when I was at Statham, the damp situation of which never agreed with me. I have enjoyed, too, better health since I left Allington, 
and suffer now less with preaching twice and once when it's at him. I'm glad to hear that Brooklyn has been promoted from the barn to overlook his fellow workmen, and sincerely hope the Lord will make him faithful to his earthly master. He will have many temptations to be otherwise, and Satan will lie hard upon him to cast him into a snare, and thus thrust him down, and then the ungodly would shout, I understand Mr. K. was lately a statum. I hope the Lord was with him to bless the word. Remember me affectionately to the friends who worship in your little place. Greet them by name. Were I to mention some and omit others, the latter might think I had forgotten them or neglected them when I had not. I remember most with Christian affection and should be glad to see them once more in the flesh. Yours very sincerely, for truth's sake, J.C. Philpott. To Mr. William Brown. July 27, 1840. My dear friend, may the Lord go with you to Stamford and be your rear ward. You know enough of the ministry to be deeply sensible that only in the Lord's light do we see light, and only in his life do we feel life. To be a daily pauper living on alms is humbling to proud nature that always is seeking to be something and to do something. Though I be nothing was Paul's highest attainment in the knowledge of self. Much pain and wounded pride and mortified self should we be spared were the self-nothingness wrought in us. Venture to be not, says Hart, but it is like a man casting himself into the sea from the forecastle, though he may be buoyed up by an invisible arm. If you can venture to be not in your meditated journey, it will save you a world of anxiety and trouble. But proud, vain, conceited flesh wants to be something, to preach well, to cut a figure, and be admired as a preacher. With all this, there is at times a hatred of such base feelings and a willingness to be nothing that the Lord may be all in all. But doubts whether the Lord will be with us, whether he can condescend to bless such base wretches, and whether we have not presumption enough to damn thousands, will at all times work with earnest desires and breathings that he would bless us indeed, and that his hand might be with us, and that he would speak in us and by us and through us to the hearts of his chosen. Yours faithfully, for truth's sake, J.C. Philpott. And finally, a letter to William Gadsby, September 1840. My dear friend, I was truly sorry to hear of your serious injury and wish it were in my power to render you some assistance. Where we Arminians, I could supply you with abundance of precepts and counsel to act faith, exercise patience, and cultivate resignation under your present affliction but all such counsel you would value at its due worth. And I believe were all the property of Manchester of equal value with such advice it would puzzle all its accountants to find out how much it was worse, less than nothing. My desire then for you is that you may fill yourself the passive moistened clay in the hands of the heavenly potter and experience his blessed fingers molding you to his divine will. If a sparrow cannot fall to the ground without Jehovah, much less the body which lodges the ransomed soul of William Gadsby. But what can old nature do under pain and confinement but murmur, rebel, argue, question, and find fault with the garden walk, and the slipping foot, and the fragile limb, and the splints, and the bandage, and the aching back eye, and the sovereign ruler of all things himself, who appointed this among the all things that are to work together for your spiritual good? I have been long searching ineffectually for something good and holy in self, but after much investigation I have been obliged to come to Paul's conclusion. I know that in me, that is, in my flesh, there dwelleth no good thing, but to be a pauper and live all one's life upon alms, and they too, to be rarely given and usually not before the eyes fail with looking upward, how galling and mortifying to the proud spirit of a rebel. Okay.
Thank you for listening to this cassette.